Today's guest is a contributor to my upcoming charity patient safety anthology titled Highway to Heart, Humor, and Honesty in Healthcare. He is Lee Varner. Lee is the past director of EMS services at the Center for Patient Safety, and he holds both a bachelor and a master's degree of science in EMS from Creighton University in Omaha, Nebraska. Lee has been a flight paramedic for a hospital-based air medical service and also served at the St. Charles County Ambulance District for over 20 years. Lee is a licensed paramedic. He has certifications as a just culture trainer and as a professional in patient safety. He has developed innovative approaches and educational programs to reduce preventable harm in EMS, including the EMS Forward Campaign, co-development of the EMS Safety Culture Assessment, workshops, and frequent speaking engagements. Lee is a founding member of the National EMS Safety Council, an active member of the NAEMT, and served on the CAAS Standards and Revisions Committee. Lots to learn from him today, so I just want to dig right in and get started. Welcome to the show, Lee. Well, thank you very much. It's my pleasure to be here today. Oh, thank you. I've been looking forward to this for a while because there are just so many directions we can take this, but let's start some of the basics. Emergency medical services, that falls under pre-hospital care, such as, why don't you just give us a little thumbnail view of that? So emergency medical services is comprised of very dedicated men and women that are out there on the front lines, if you will, every day. They are the ones that answer the call typically when a uh, person calls 911. They are responsible for providing that emergency medicine or that emergent care that's required before a patient gets to a hospital. On the other side of the coin, EMS also provides interfacility transport. So if a patient is being uh, flown in by helicopter or transported in by ground from a uh, remote or rural facility to, say, a tertiary care facility, they're the ones that are providing that care front and center to the patient. And Lee, we always talk about patient safety as far as hospital settings, outpatient settings, nursing homes, rehabs, but seldom when it comes to emergency medical services. So how does EMS safety differ from safety within these other venues? You know, that's really a great question. EMS is still, by some respects, a new profession or a new industry, still learning about what patient safety is. And that term patient safety really isn't part of the everyday vocabulary or terminology used in EMS. Looking at the industry, it's spent a great deal of time really developing resiliency and reliability around provider or workforce safety, mainly because that industry has so many risks associated to that frontline clinician that's out there answering the call. I guess what I'm trying to say is that across the spectrum of the industry, some organizations might be more sophisticated uh, in what they're doing around patient safety, while others are still learning what does this mean, how do we do it, and where do we start? One thinks, I, I would imagine, that the emphasis in emergency services is following correct procedures very quickly and accurately versus hospital setting where you're making in-depth diagnoses. So I, I'm wondering if the procedures and the systems are correct in an emergency situation, does that make for a less chance of an adverse event? That's really a great question. If we think about the day in the life of a EMT or a paramedic. They're responding to calls 
where they often have no idea what's happened before they get there. And they are thrust into situations where they need to make decisions quickly. And they need to be able to gather information and to be able to assess the situation, the patient, the surroundings in a very quick way to make those decisions and clinical care plans rapidly. If we look in the hospital setting, for example, oftentimes things might be at a slower pace. It's more of a controlled, sterile environment. Oftentimes, a medical record may be available or patient history. You know, EMS oftentimes is up against um, different challenges that can increase risks that we don't see in that more stable, sterile hospital environment. I was just thinking that if all systems were in place properly and correctly, that it was more of an automatic kind of response. But as you're saying, they have no idea what they're walking into with each and every phone call. So it's, yeah, it's a bit of a riskier situation. And you mentioned the word sterile environment. Infection control and infection prevention is probably my biggest hot button. So given the fast pace in these emergency service situations, is infection control more of an issue? You know, I think there has been enormous steps by emergency medical services to bring in infection control into what they're doing on a daily basis, not only to uh, protect the uh, frontline clinician so they're not at risk for exposure, but then also looking at it from more of a system perspective. Um, what do I need to be doing to prevent my patient from getting infected? And certainly there can be, I think, improvements around that effort by EMS, especially as we learn more about sterile technique and also compliance around, you know, how to really think about what we're doing and the risks that are associated with our patients. And I think for EMS, you know, obviously the, the culture is very different in that pre-hospital setting as opposed to working in a hospital. Most EMS organizations, at least the ones that are in high-performance type of organizations, ones that are running a lot of calls, if you will, they may only be with their patient for 10, 15, 20 minutes maybe from picking them up to getting them to a hospital. So oftentimes they don't see that downstream effect. So if they, for example, might cause an infection, that's a horrible thing to think about, isn't it? If they were part of that uh, causal factor in that patient getting an infection, they probably wouldn't know about it, hear about it, or learn about it from the hospital. And that's just kind of the unfortunate thing that exists today between EMS and hospitals, that that feedback loop on patient outcomes mm -hmm. and uh, what's happening in that pre-hospital setting uh, throughout the course of then the inpatient setting, that feedback loop oftentimes is never completed you can't follow that trail because within that 10-minute period of time, perhaps there was a transfer of MRSA or a C. diff bacterium or whatever, but you would never know that if the person then just spent the next three weeks in the hospital. There would be no way to trace that back. So that's, uh, that's very, very interesting. You talked about the culture and how it's different for uh, EMS versus the other settings. And Today, I want to talk a bit, because I know this is one of your passions and something you've worked on to a great extent, is talking about just culture. Explain what that means. I like the term a model of shared accountability as to how can we set expectations with our staff to really do the right thing? How can we empower them to make the right choices? And 
how can we support them in making those right choices and have those behaviors so they are following processes and, and, and procedures that are not only safe for themselves, but also safe for the patient and, and safe for the organization um, itself. And so Just Culture really offers us a framework to look at these things and to really begin to move an organization into that model of shared accountability. Uh, moving away from a punitive culture where we punish people for making mistakes, because Ultimately, that really doesn't do anything to improve safety. It just scares people away, and it drives problems underground. So how can we develop more of an open and learning environment? And that's one of the things that um, Just Culture allows us to do. It, it offers a way to look at people's behaviors, the choices they make, but then also look at the systems that they work in. Because we can develop uh, processes, ways that we care for patients, and ultimately those are really the, the, the way errors occur that, you know, it's not a person showing up for work or for duty, not caring about things, right? Um, seldom does a person, maybe it probably never happens that a person would say, hey, I hope I make a mistake today, right? That, that just doesn't mm -hmm. happen. But typically it's, it's a breakdown in the systems that people are working within. And so Just Culture allows us that framework to really look at, you know, what happened, why did it happen, was it a behavior, or was it, uh, you know, really a breakdown in the system, and then we can go back and address those in the way that it should be. And uh, Dr. Lucian Leap, who is writing the foreword for our book, stated that the single greatest impediment to error prevention in the medical industry is that we punish people for making mistakes. And as you said, that just drives drives the problem deeper when, say, a system is failing and the individual really has no control over that system and they're just following the rules. Yeah, and we have to accept the fact that we're human. We're going to make mistakes. We're prone to errors. And if we think about just our day today, how many mistakes have each of us made just getting started today? I've made a few and I imagine our listeners have as well. So Healthcare is no different. You know, the people that work in it are caring, compassionate, dedicated people, but they're human. They're going to make mistakes. So how can we create a culture to learn from our mistakes and then strengthen and find greater resiliency in the, the systems that we're working within? And so that's one of the things that I, I like about Just Culture is because it will help an organization move towards that non-punitive environment. Um, most Clinical errors are identified around those slips or those lapses where we have a human error or where people are drifting, um, where they're maybe taking shortcuts or maybe where they're doing things that we call multitasking. Um, and, and oftentimes that's driven to the culture because other people are doing it as well and it becomes accepted and next thing we know everybody's doing it. So seldom is it that, that reckless behavior where people um, – have a, a conscious disregard for safety uh, for themselves or their patients or the processes that they're working within. So really working in just culture, a lot of it is, is coaching and mentoring and helping people to make those right decisions and choices for what they're doing every day. So you're talking about creating a culture. So everybody's talking about creating a just culture, but how does that actually happen? How do you really initiate this and then perpetuate it and ensure that all staff members do feel free to report errors? Those questions are some of the biggest challenges that just culture faces 
as leaders begin to contemplate, are we ready or is it time or should we begin this journey? Where just culture doesn't work is where people want a quick fix because um, when we're talking about changing a culture, we're talking about years. There's literature out there and uh, research that shows this takes five, six, seven or more years to begin to turn the tide or move the culture within an organization. And so when we begin to think about implementing just culture, that uh, we need to realize it's not a uh, quick fix, something that we can decide we're going to do, kind of like the flavor of the month, but we're, we're walking into a commitment in a journey within the organization. And that we need to have the right or correct intentions in place. So we're not looking for just a new disciplinary process, um, an algorithm that we can follow, if you will, because that's where we've seen some people get into trouble with just culture is that they want to just have a new way to administer discipline and say they've gone down a just culture route. Mm-hmm. But really, it's about transforming the culture within the organization mm-hmm. and understanding that it's going to take time. It's going to take persistence. It's going to require leadership's involvement, buy-in, and support for this work. To find sustainability with it, it's going to be all hands on deck, and there's certain things that that can be done to to make it find traction, find support, and grow within the organization, but patience is probably one of the the most Mm -hmm. important uh, first steps in understanding when you're contemplating or or starting just culture. I would imagine that all staff members would really desire this move from secrecy to transparency. And accountability, though, I'm thinking has to be universal and reciprocal, you know, not just from the top down saying, hey, this is how it's going to be. Everyone needs to feel the need for this. So I, I imagine you have to get the entire staff to desire this change. You know, that's a great point. Years ago, when I first heard about Just Culture, I was still working as a paramedic. And I remember a management uh, person came in and said, hey, we're going to be, you know, implementing this Just Culture business. And from a perspective of not knowing anything about it, immediately, it you know, it raises some concern because you're hearing about a change, you don't know anything about it, and you don't know what that means. And likewise, for the frontline clinician, change is, is something that's difficult, and especially when you're talking about disciplinary processes. And so having the frontline support of this is, is critical. And so that means really um, explaining what it is and allowing them to understand and absorb it, taking some time to really digest what it means and, and realizing that, you know, this is something that can be good for them and for their organization, even if they're a union shop, if you will, or they're part of a uh, uh, a union organization, that uh, this can be done in a very successful way and not only help and improve the, the, the quality and safety within the organization, but overall um, employee satisfaction. Um, and that's something that the EMS industry really is in dire need of today as We're seeing shortages of paramedics. We're seeing turnover and agencies that have a punitive culture where people don't want to work at. And likewise, recruiting new people to come into the industry. How can we encourage them to to work in EMS and and, and find a career here and not be fearful of uh, of working in an environment that that might be perceived as being uh, punitive? 
I'm happy we're having this conversation because that's how change starts when people hear about things and kind of tickles their brain to continue that conversation with others. And I know that you are also concerned with what's called the second victim. And I would think that if we were able to create a culture, a just culture where people felt free to admit that they made a mistake because they are in fact human and not get punished by it, but to say, okay, what can we learn from this? What systems need to be tweaked? We would have less of a situation with providers being the second victim of a medical error. Unfortunately, in EMS and probably other areas in healthcare, there's a stigma that's associated with people that uh, that want help or that need help, and that prohibits people from coming forward and, and, and asking for help. And likewise, not having systems in place to support staff especially the ones that uh, work in industries such as healthcare where people are exposed to horrific things. And so working in EMS, you know, we're exposed to a lot of things that uh, the average person is unaware of or is may not be cognizant that even occurs in, you know, in their communities. And so Having a way to support our providers and our clinicians is, is critical. And that's one of the things I really love about the second victim program is that it allows for an escalated way to support people um, as they work through what they experience maybe during a call or a patient encounter. The second victim phenomenon is, is something that's triggered by an unanticipated medical or um, some type of an event. And I can only reflect on what, what I experienced my years working as a paramedic and some of those things that might have triggered my own second victim events. But we know they're out there and we know that they occur every day. And so it's critical that we have, you know, processes in place to support our, our staff above and beyond just um, saying, hey, if you got a problem, go to EAP. But realizing, you know what, um, if a clinician was just on a call and they had experienced something that was horrific, we need to get them out of that situation immediately. They need support, they need help, and certainly they don't need to be um, taking care of another patient. Mm -hmm. And so the second victim program really allows for, again, that escalated response based upon a peer-to-peer -peer support um, network that's been developed within the organization. So. I encourage all of your listeners to learn more about the second victim phenomenon and to look at attending a workshop where they can uh, develop a peer-to-peer uh, -peer based program within their organization and find that support. But then also we work together to break down that stigma that's associated with asking for help and realizing that, you know, again, we're, we're human. Not only can we make mistakes, but you know what? We, we can be impacted by what we experience in our jobs every day. So for me right now, you're expanding that definition of second victim because I know most people think of it as, a, say, a provider who was kind of at the sharp end of creating a medical error. So not only was the person who suffered the medical error the victim, but now the provider who made that error is also the second victim. But you're expanding this to, say, any provider who sees something or experiences something that, again, triggers them, increases anxiety, depression, and those type of things, instead of squashing that, now they, they can feel free to come forward and say, hey, I, I'm affected by this. I need help. Right. 
Right. And, and that's really that stigma we, we want to break down. And so if I'm a clinician, uh, you know, a paramedic, and I was just on a pediatric cardiac arrest call, maybe it was a SIDS patient, maybe it was some type of other traumatic call involving a pediatric patient, a child, that can create or trigger that, uh, that second victim phenomenon, mm-hmm. especially if that clinician has children of their own. So we want to get them the support that they need. And maybe it's just talking to somebody. Maybe it's something more, but getting them out of that environment, off that ambulance or out of that aircraft if they're on a helicopter, and making sure they're okay, checking in, but then allowing for a framework to support them further. And so you're you're right. The second victim phenomenon can be triggered by different things. Uh, a failure to rescue a patient. I had seen that several times working in, in EMS where we might have had a patient in a motor vehicle accident and we weren't able to get them out of the uh, the car. They were trapped in the wreckage and we literally watched them die before us, not being able to really do anything. And that's frustrating. It's terrifying. It's heartbreaking. And as a clinician, you experience that. And sometimes you just don't know what to do with that. And unfortunately, we can harbor those feelings and it can begin to drive second guessing on, on our skills. And, you know, maybe we should have done this. Maybe we should have done that. And you begin to, you know, hold on to some of that. And that's where it can really begin to impact that clinician or that EMT or paramedic. And as we're talking about this, kind of a realization that patient safety really begins with our providers and their well-being, both physically, mentally, and emotionally. And I don't think that's something that many people give thought to. That's very true. And we looked at it from a human factors perspective, showing up for duty and, you know, realizing, you know, am I fit to work today? You know, is you know, did, did I did I have enough rest? Do I have any family issues that are bothering me that are in the back of my head? What types of things are impacting me to really perform my job at a top performance um, level this particular shift or day? And so, you know, that fit for duty, if you will, and, and being prepared and, and ready to answer the call, that's critical not only for somebody working in a hospital, but for EMS partners as well. I laugh at this. I did this quite innocently many years ago. I was having some kind of a procedure done. And when the doctor walked in, I asked him, I'm like, did you have a good breakfast? Are you feeling okay today? You're, is your wife mad at you today? Uh, you know, I kind of had those <laughs> those joke conversations with, I said, you need to be in the top of your game. So uh, as I was joking with that at the time, actually, that makes a lot of good sense. Right. Patient does not think about it. They expect that when that person shows up, they are ready to roll. They have no life behind them. They, they have no recollection of what just happened to them 10 minutes ago. You're here, I'm here, and that's all that matters. So I think we as patients need to maybe adjust our frame of thought to think that this person is a human just like we are as well and may come to us with their own set of uh, issues. Uh, somebody to think about and talk about probably at another time. Lee, there's so much more I want to talk with you about transitions of care, medication errors. You talked about airway safety. We need to get into those topics. So if you don't mind, I'd like to have you come back sometime where we can really dig into those. I would love to. One of the areas that I really find great interest around is 
that pre-hospital setting and, and the hospital setting. How can we bring mm-hmm. our hospital partners and our EMS partners together yeah. and work more closely? Because really, at the end of the day, it's the patient that's in the middle, right? That's why we're all here. That's why we're, you know, answering the call or showing up for duty or clocking in at the hospital. So how can we work better together to support patient safety and, uh, and, and the best outcome for our, for our patient? Right. That continuity of care is extremely important. Absolutely. Yep, yep, yep. All right, my friend, anything we missed? I'm sure there's loads, but anything for today that you wanted to bring up? Well, I really appreciate you bringing up the second victim because I think that's something that's overlooked mm-hmm. and something that we may just take for granted. And that, uh, you know, it's something that we really need to be thinking about that mental health of our, uh, of our clinician. And this goes above and beyond EMS. This is for people that are working in any healthcare setting. We just want to make sure they're getting the support that they need so they don't become, you know, victims themselves. And I think after today's conversation, it will open people's eyes to think in that direction. So I so appreciate you for um, sharing this conversation with us today. Lee Varner, it's V-A-R-N-E-R. You can find him on LinkedIn, and uh, he's going to be in our new book. Any final words before we head out, Lee? It's my pleasure and and really an honor to be part of this. I appreciate you reaching out and uh, involving me with this. And... uh... I want to thank you for your work and not only your book, but your radio show and ongoing efforts to reduce preventable patient harm in, in healthcare. So again, an honor to be here and with your listeners today. So thank you very much. Listen to Pat Rulo and Speak Up and Stay Alive Radio. Stay safe from little known healthcare and hospital hazards. To learn more, go to speakupandstayalive.com. That's speakupandstayalive.com. <laughs>